0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Addressing Key Targets in Advanced Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, Evaluating the Latest Evidence and Clinical Opportunities for HER2, HER3, and TROP2 Targeted Therapies. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash ZGP860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hi, and welcome to our symposium on addressing key targets in advanced non lung cancer. Today, we will cover the latest data on HER2, HER3, and TROP2 targeted therapies. I'm Pasi Yander from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts, and I'm joined by my two esteemed colleagues, Dr. Edward Guerin from, from UCLA and Dr. Helena Yu from Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York. This is our agenda today. Uh, we will uh, have uh, three different uh, presentations uh, focusing on the three different targets, HER2, HER3, and trope 2 as well as some discussion towards the end and case presentations. Now, I'll first start with an introduction on gar- current gaps and opportunities for improvement on expanding and understanding molecular complexity of non-small cell lung cancer. We have all uh, come to appreciate the pie chart in non-small cell lung cancer. Lung adenocarcinoma is a disease made up of specific subsets of the disease whereby there are multiple approved drugs uh, shown here on the right-hand side for the different subsets of disease. And in fact, there are nine different uh, subsets where we have uh, specific uh, drug approvals. And hence, it's important to be able to identify for our patients, do their can- does, does their cancer harbor one of these genomic alterations for us to effectively treat them with targeted therapies. Now, when you look at uh, the fraction of individuals who actually get tested, it's not as high as one would envision. On the uh, top left from the My Lung Consortium, you can see that although the vast majority of individuals are tested for EGFR uh, uh, mutations and ALK rearrangements, when you start to go down and ask what fraction of individuals are tested, for all five of these biomarkers, or what fraction of individuals get uh, next generation sequencing, uh, it is still uh, not the and uh, um, it's not the majority of individuals on the left hand side, data from Flatiron, from Flatiron um, looking at also patients of different ethnic backgrounds. Uh, with uh, lower rates of testing for patients that are uh, African American, whether they uh, uh, have non small cell overall or just non squamous cell, non small cell lung cancer, hence suggesting that we need to do better as a community to test our individuals, ind- for our patients, for individual genomic alterations. Despite the rapid advances of targeted therapies for non small cell lung cancer, we still need new and novel therapies. Uh, as I showed you on the pie chart, we have multiple approved therapies. However, not all of our therapies are, uh, are effective or are effective for very long periods of time. And even the, even the most effective therapies, patients do develop resistance, and we need new targeted therapies. In addition, there are subsets of that pie chart where we do not currently have any approved therapies, one example being HER2 mutations, which make up a few percent of non-small cell lung cancer, but at the current time do not have an approved targeted therapy. Now, our symposium will focus on antibody drug conjugates. And this is a class of drugs that is uh, relatively new to the thoracic oncology field. And antibody drug conjugates are antibodies that are conjugated through a linker to a cytotoxic payload. And these bind a, a protein, a cell surface protein, are then internalized into the cells and the payload is released in the cells. And this is a schematic representation of that for HER2 targeting ADC. You can see on the left-hand side, you have a HER2-positive cancer cell, HER2-antibody drug conjugate, binds the receptor. It is internalized. Then the receptor and the payload end up in the lysosome uh, where, this, where the payload is released. And it can be released into the cell where the antibody bound. Or it can also uh, um, uh, leak out into adjacent cells that are potentially, in this example, HER2- and be effective in that manner as well. And this is an example of that uh, uh, from a publication a few years ago where the investigators mixed HER2 positive and HER2 negative cells and treated these tumors and were able to show not only an effect in the HER2 positive cells, but also in the HER2 negative cells because of this effect of leaking into the adjacent cells that may not have the presence of the antigen uh, for which the antibody binds to. Okay, so uh, let's move on to the specific topics. I will I will speak on HER2 mutant lung cancer uh, as the as the first topic. As I mentioned, HER2 mutations happen in about three to four percent of lung adenocarcinoma. And although there's a wide variety of HER2 mutations, the vast majority of them are exon 20 insertion mutations uh, in this, uh, 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 in one particular location shown as the a blue piece of the pie chart. There are multiple other mutations, uh, but the uh, uh, exon 20 insertion mutation is by far the most common. Now, I mentioned there are no approved targeted therapies for HER2 mutant lung cancer, but there are plenty of therapies that have been tried, and these can include antibodies that are single epitope antibodies, such as pertuzumab. These can include bispecific antibodies, can include antibody drug conjugates that I I mentioned, or small molecule inhibitors, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, uh, which are HER2 specific, for example, lapatinib, neratinib, or tucatinib, uh, which have also been tested uh, in this disease. But let's focus on the antibody drug conjugates for today. The first of these that it was tested is TDM1 or adotrastuzumab, mTanzine. This was tested in a trial that was published uh, by Dr. Lee a few years ago in the JCO, uh, where uh, HER2 mutant patients were examined. You can see on the, on the right-hand side, the waterfall plot and the, and the Kaplan-Meier curve for PFS. And there's about a 40% or so response rate in this patient population with a progression-free survival of about 5.5 uh, 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 months. Now, trastuzumab Tcan is a next-generation uh, HER2 antibody drug conjugate. Uh, it's extensively been tested in breast and gastric cancer and has approvals in those situations. And unlike um, uh, TDM1, it has two differences. It has a different linker and has a different payload. And the payload here is a uh, uh, exatecan or a topoisomerase inhibitor uh, derivative. And, and, the, and this molecule has a high drug-to-antibody ratio of about 8 molecules per uh, specific antibody, the goal being that it would, be, it would deliver a very potent uh, effect uh, in each of the cells. And in lung cancer, this has been tested in two cohorts, uh, one in uh, uh, HER2 mutant lung cancer and two in HER2 overexpressing lung cancer as part of this DESTINY-01 uh, lung cancer study. And I'll for- first uh, discuss the data in the HER2 mutant cohort uh, that was presented at ESMO this last fall and was recently published in the New England Journal by Dr. Lee. And this trial uh, evaluated 91 patients with HER2 mutant lung cancer. Uh, The the, uh, ethnic distribution uh, is shown there, as well as the region of the world where the patients were enrolled. Uh, A vast majority of individuals had kinase domain mutations, um, which being the insertion mutation. Asymptomatic CNS metastases was present in about a third of individuals. uh, And uh, smoking status, uh, the the majority of individuals were never smokers, as as you'd expect for this patient population. This is the history of prior systemic therapies. The prior lines of treatment was two with a range of zero to seven. The vast majority of individuals had received platinum-based chemotherapy. They may have also received anti pdl one or PD-1 therapies, docetaxel, and the minority of individuals had had prior HER2 TKIs. Of note, you could not have had a HER2-directed antibody as an enrollment criteria for this trial. Uh, This is the response rate uh, in the 91 patients. The response rate was uh, 55%. The 50 patients responded. The vast majority of responses were partial responses. This is the waterfall plot. Now the waterfall plot is color coded for uh, uh, kinase domain mutations in blue and in orange for exocellular domain mutations. You can see again the vast majority of individuals had kinase domain mutations, although there are patients responding who have exocellular domain, domain mutations as well. In the middle part, are the biomarkers from the study, uh, including the mutations, HER2 copy number, as well as HER2 expression. And what's interesting here is uh, uh, HER2 expression in many of these individuals is in fact zero. Now this is zero by breast cancer IHC criteria, of course it can't be zero because the antibody is binding, but it suggests that the mutation is the more important biomarker here as opposed to uh, the expression. Only a few patients had concomitant HER2 amplification. Uh, Both of them responded in this uh, scenario. And on the bottom is the spider plot for this patient population. These are the PFS and OS curves. The PFS is about 8.2 months and the OS about 17.8 months. Now, uh, this is the safety summary. Uh, It was generally consistent with the prior studies. Grade 3 and higher drug-related AEs occurred in about 46% of patients. Neutropenia was common. Uh, And one class of toxicities uh, that is seen with this uh, uh, group of agents is uh, interstitial lung disease, and it occurred in in 26% of patients and resulted in death in two individuals. Now, I mentioned uh, uh, um, trastuzumab deric has also been tested in HER2-IHC-positive patients. So these are the characteristics of those patients. A smaller study of 49 individuals uh, broken down by IHC 2-plus and 3-plus. Um, uh, on the right-hand side is, uh, is shown the genotype distribution for these individuals. Some of them have targetable alterations, although for the vast majority of patients, we do not, in fact, know their genotype uh, uh, the, the most patients that had uh, platinum-based chemotherapy as well as immune checkpoint uh, therapy. The activity is shown here on the waterfall plot on the right as well as the response rate. So the confirmed overall response rate overall is about 25%. Uh, it's 25% in the IHC2 plus and 20% in the IHC3 plus uh, patient population. And again, a partial, re- all, mostly all partial responses essentially. Median duration response is about six months. PFS in this patient population, 5.4 months with a median OS of 11.3 months. Now, uh, this uh, also lists the side effects uh, from this. And and again, similar uh, to the uh, uh, prior uh, prior, uh, mention of ILD in this patient population. So again, this is a side effect or toxicity of interest. So to summarize, trastuzumab deruxtecan showed durable anti-cancer activity in patients with previously treated HER2 mutant non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, in fact, it's received FDA's breakthrough designation for this patient population. Uh, there's preliminary uh, anti-tumor activity in HER2 overexpressing non-small cell lung cancer. However, uh, clearly the activity is less in this patient population than in the HER2 mutant patient population. And as I mentioned, ILD is one of the, the side effects that we need to be uh, watch out for. There is a plan to move uh, uh, and, and to study this agent in other instances uh, in the second-line setting and also in the frontline setting, both in the HER2 overexpressing patients as well as the HER2 mutant patients. This is the uh, uh, st- uh, study schema for DESTINY Lung O4 for trastuzumab deruxtecan uh, in the HER2 mutant patient population. Patient are randomized to trastuzumab deruxtecan or to chemotherapy uh, 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 plus pembrolizumab with the primary endpoint uh, being uh, progression-free survival. So this is an ongoing study. So I will now uh, turn it over to my colleague, Dr. Helen Yu to discuss uh, uh, HER3. Great,
1: thanks Posse. All right, so HER3 is another unique member of the HER family. um, And I think it's particularly unique because it, it has limited intrinsic kinase activity. Um, it actually signals exclusively through heterodimerization with its other family members, um, and in particular, EGFR and HER2. Um, HER3 is activated by ligand binding, specifically by noregulin. And HER3 overexpression is actually pretty commonly seen in, in, in different solid tumors, including lung, colorectal, and breast cancer. And actual genomic mutations are much more rare, but we do see ERBB um, HER3 mutations as well as amplifications at low frequency in certain cancers. Um, HER3 uh, is expressed in the vast majority of non-small cell lung cancers. Um, HER3 overexpression is associated with both metastatic progression as well as decreased relapse-free survival. A point to make here is that there is clear overlap between genomic drivers and protein overexpression. Um, i.e. patients that have EGFR mutant lung cancer can also have overexpression of HER3. Um, HER3 is overexpressed in EGFR mutant lung cancers, um, but actual HER3 genomic alterations are not seen as a mechanism of resistance to EGFR TKI. Um, And I think important to note also that targeting HER3 may be relevant across multiple genomic mechanisms of resistance to EGFR TKI. Um, So EGFR TKIs are the first-line treatment of choice for patients with EGFR mutant lung cancer. Um, But of course, resistance to therapy is universal. Uh, Mechanisms of resistance depend on the the specific EGFR TKI utilized and also line of therapy. And you can see that on the figure on the bottom, where with earlier-generation EGFR TKIs, of course, we saw emergence of T790M. And even with osomertinib, when we treated patients with osomertinib in the later-line setting, um, there, were, there was a different spectrum of uh, resistance mutations compared to first line osomertinib, where actually, in the majority of patients, we do not detect and acquire genomic alteration. And more commonly, we have been seeing um, off target resistance mechanisms um, as well as histologic transformation. Um, Platinum based chemotherapies following EGFR TKI failure um, do have modest efficacy, um, but certainly are utilized in the second line setting. And salvage therapies after TKIs and after platinum-based chemotherapy really have more minimal efficacy, and new treatments are certainly needed in this space. Um, So um, as Pasi mentioned with HER2, there are different HER3-targeted treatment strategies. Um, Up, Kind of historically, we really have focused on uh, monoclonal antibodies, so the naked antibody. Um, And those have been looked at in unselected populations as well as um, selected populations like EGFR immune lung cancers and really have not seen uh, success. And, and again, um, more present day focus is on antibody drug conjugates as well as some bispecific antibodies. Um, so similar to you'll you'll notice similarities between uh, this HER3 ADC and the HER2 ADC that was previously discussed. Um, it consists of a, a, a naked anti-HER3 antibody that is linked to a chemotherapy payload, which is an exotecan derivative. So HER3-DXD was studied in a phase one study specifically in patients with metastatic EGFR mutant lung cancer with progression on prior EGFR TKI treatment. Uh, The dose escalation portion assessed um, escalating doses of HER3-DXD. Um, And then the expansion really focused on the dose of 5.6 milligrams per kilogram and focused on the patient uh, population of patients um, that received prior EGFR-TKI as well as prior platinum-based chemotherapy. Um, Baseline characteristics are described in the bottom left of the figure. Um, Of course, all patients received prior EGFR-TKI. The majority received prior osimertinib. Um, The majority also received prior platinum-based chemotherapy and about half um, received prior immunotherapy. And I think important to highlight that this phase one population was heavily pretreated, with a median of four lines of prior systemic therapy. So in terms of efficacy, um, the confirmed overall response rate in the population at large was 39%. Um, disease control was obtained in the ma- for the majority of patients. Um, time to response was short, less than three months. Um, and then the median progression-free survival was 8.2 months. Um, So here's the waterfall plot that shows the percent shrinkage of um, target lesions for patients on the phase one study. Um, It's hard to read, but I want you to focus on the bottom half of the the figure, um, which shows uh, or highlights two points. One, that um, this drug was active in a variety of uh, EGFR activating sensitizing mutations, including exon 18 alterations. And then you can see that there are a diverse um, array of mechanisms of resistance to EGFR TKI that we're seeing in patients treated on study, um, including on-target mechanisms of resistance like C797S and off-target resistance, um, such as HER2 amplification and um, BRAF alterations. Um, So here's the swimmer's plot of uh, patients treated on study. Um, You can see at this point, the majority of patients on study uh, were still ongoing in regards to treatment. Um, and then I think the other thing to highlight here is that in regards to progression, the majority of patients actually had systemic uh, disease progression, and the minority had um, CNS progression that um, caused them to come off study. Uh, this is, I think, is an important slide. I think um, patients on study were not required uh, to be tested up front for HER3 expression, um, but all patients did uh, were required to have um, uh, available tissue for retrospective HER3 expression analysis. Uh, the figure on the bottom left shows that all patients had some degree of HER3 expression. Um, and then there were the, the middle figure shows really that there was no correlation between degree of HER3 expression and time since last EGFR TKI treatment. And then the figure on the bottom right is important because it shows that actually responses were observed in patients with a wide range of baseline HER3 um, H scores, uh, really suggesting that degree of HER3 expression is not... Um, a, a great biomarker for response to Pat Derrick's t uh, In regards to toxicity, um, all patients did have some degree of treatment emergent toxicities. Um, oh. You can see the treatment emergent grade three or greater toxicities that were seen with some frequency on the figure on the right. Um, uh, we saw uh, uh, thrombocytopenia, neutropenia, anemia, fatigue, and I think it's important to highlight that these ADCs are chemotherapy, um, and so we do see um, the cytopenias that, of course, are common with um, chemotherapy. And then in terms of AEs of special interest, um, you can see on the bottom of the table, ILD, um, the frequency of ILD with patritumab deric Tcan was somewhat lower at 5%, but again, this is a class effect uh, seen in all of these ADCs. So in summary, um, uh, with HER3-DXD, there was clinically meaningful durable efficacy with an overall response rate of 39%, a median PFS of 8.2 months. Um, Efficacy was shown across different EGFR-TKI resistance mechanisms in a difficult-to-treat population with no currently approved available targeted therapies. Um, Anti-tumor activity was observed across a wide range of baseline HER3 expression. Um, The the drug petritumab-dericstekan is is tolerable with an acceptable safety profile. There was a low rate of treatment discontinuation due to adverse events um, and a low rate of treatment-related interstitial lung disease. This is um, the current and future clinical development of HER3-DXD. Um, The confirmatory uh, phase two study is the HERthena study, which I'll show you a study schema for. And then the other important study to note is um, this agent is being looked at in combination with osimertinib as second-line therapy immediately following first-line osimertinib progression. And here's the study schema for um, Herthena, which is taking patients with metastatic EGFR mutant lung cancer, focusing on the common EGFR mutations, exon-19 deletion, and L858R. Patients have to have received prior osimertinib as well as prior platinum based chemotherapy um, and they are two two things are being assessed both a fixed dose of her three dxD as well as an up titration and now I'll turn it to Edward Eddie for um a talk about discussion on trope two
2: Thank you Helena um so I will now move on to speaking about trope two Trope two is now um a a um basically a target of therapy that people have become familiar with. Um, it's a transmembrane glycoprotein highly expressed in non-small cell lung cancer, but also other solid tumors. So this is not an exclusive uh, story related to uh, to lung cancer. Um, there clearly has been an association with uh, higher trope two levels and, and poor prognosis. Um, you can see um, in the upper right here, um, data related to probability of survival in adenocarcinoma cases. Um, but right now, we don't really have established uh, sort of trope two levels that are considered to be relevant for clinical care. Um, in many respects, one of the reasons that um, people are familiar with uh, this is uh, cezachizumab govotecan, which is uh, now an approved agent. Um, this, of course, is not approved for lung cancer. It is approved for, uh, for other malignancies. Um, Lung cancer data is fairly sparse for this agent, uh, which is a trope to uh, antibody drug conjugate. In 2017, there was a report in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, Rebecca Heist was the first author, um, showing a response rate um, for all patients a a little below 20%. um, Duration of response uh, for all the patients was about six months. Um, down in the lower left, you can see the waterfall plot um, showing uh, evidence of benefit, as well as a spider plot in the middle. Um, you can see that uh, the, the, the linker is a little bit different for this agent than what has been shown uh, by the two prior speakers, um, as this is, a, a, a of course, a, a slightly different payload, although there certainly are similarities with the payload. Um, again, we don't have a lot of data. As you can see, this was a small study, 54 patients um, originally. Uh, and nonetheless, though, we do now have um, two studies that are actually ongoing that are evaluating this. One is looking in the frontline setting with uh, some therapies that include uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors. And there is also a randomized study looking at uh, at a comparison with single agent docetaxel. So... Um, then there is a similar trope-2 targeting uh, antibody drug conjugate to the, the molecules that were just described uh, by, by Posse and, and Helena. Um, and this is uh, datapotamab-deruxtican, which is uh, also called DatoDXD. Um, it is, uh, again, uh, this same uh, sort of a, a cleavable tetrapeptide-based linker, as well as the topoisomerase one inhibitor payload. Um, antibody drug ratio is about four here. Um, and, uh, this has been extensively studied now in lung cancer. I'm going to show you some of the data. Um, this was a, a reasonably large study. One thing that is unique about, uh, trope two as a marker as compared to, Um, What you've heard about before is that this is looking sort of across lung cancer, not necessarily a specifically molecularly defined subgroup, Um, and in fact, um, similar to what was described um, in the prior two uh, presentations, although data um, for immunohistochemistry for the target was obtained as part of this study, it was not a requirement for enrollment. And to date, at least for uh, Trope 2, it has been difficult to correlate outcome with uh, trope 2 expression. In some respects, this makes it hard when you discuss these agents with patients because you explain that the goal is to direct the chemotherapy uh, to where you see, uh, to, to cells that express the target. Um, but then you tell them that whether or not they express the target doesn't really matter. So it can sometimes lead to mixed messages. But of course, the most important thing is assessing whether or not the agent uh, helps in the management of their disease. Um, the inclusion criteria, it was uh, adults with good performance status, measurable disease. Um, patients with stable treated brain metastases were allowed. There was initially a dose escalation phase um, but what I'm going to be addressing uh, here is data on the, uh, the dose expansion. There were three doses that were expanded, four milligrams per kilogram, six milligrams per kilogram, and eight milligrams per kilogram. And um, we were certainly looking to establish uh, tolerability, safety, and uh, choose the, the appropriate dose, um, but also, of course, looking for efficacy as well. So here you can see the uh, the, the data with respect to uh, to uh, you know toxicity. You can see that overall the agent was uh, was was well managed. You can you can see the toxicity profile um, as uh, was pointed out. These are chemotherapies, so many of the toxicities that you see on the right um, nausea, alopecia um, are things that um, are typically associated with chemotherapy. Um, there was a trend towards um, towards increase in the toxicity data with the 8 milligrams per kilogram. And um, as was mentioned with trastuzumab deruxtecan, there was an issue with uh, ILD, and there were three patients with a grade 5 related uh, ILD. Um, all three of these patients were at the 8 milligram per kilogram dose level, and that dose level had subsequently been Uh, discontinued. It is no longer being uh, evaluated as part of the program. So now with respect to efficacy, the efficacy was quite good. This was a heavily previously treated patient population. Uh, Most people had had at least three lines of prior therapy, and many of the patients had had uh, significantly more than that. You can see the, uh, the response rate data all three of the doses with uh, response rates in the mid to high 20% range. Again, this is in a heavily previously treated uh, patient population. Um, There were also uh, many patients who did have stable disease as well. You can see the duration of response data here. Um, which is quite good, um, at six milligrams per kilogram, which is the dose that is currently uh, being further developed, you can see the duration of response of 10.5 months. And I think also, somewhat reassuringly, um, there is a dose level that is a step down from the dose level that is currently being evaluated This four milligram per kilogram uh, dose level um, that clearly has uh, very significant activity. Um, that I think would be reassuring to people about that dose level should there be a need to dose reduce um, on the right, you can see the waterfall plot showing uh you know clear activity of of the drug. You can see that um, the four milligram dose is in green blue for the six milligram per kilogram dose, and uh, the sort of a purple for the the eight milligram per kilogram dose, and what you can see is that there's no clear association uh, on the waterfall plot with the dose. Um, the spider plot on the bottom uh, shows connects uh, that would be anticipated with a drug of this class. So as I mentioned, um, one thing that is unique about the development of the, of the trope 2 antibody as, as opposed uh, to uh, the prior antibody drug conjugates is that uh, this was looking across lung cancer. And the study included both patients who did and did not have actionable genomic alterations. Um, of the patients who were enrolled on the study, again, at the dose expansion, it was, uh, you know, it was 180 patients. Uh, you can see that uh, 34 of them had actionable genomic alterations. Uh, the treatment uh, that those patients had received was quite similar to the treatments that had been received in other cohorts. The only thing of note being that uh, based on uh, a perceived lack of benefit with immunotherapy among these actionable genomic alteration patients, as compared to um, the the total patient population, immunotherapy was used less frequently as a prior therapy. What you can see is that for the most part. This is a study of patients who had EGFR mutations, um, as would be expected, um, based on what the actual genomic alterations that were assessed were. There were three patients who were evaluated who had an ALK gene fusion, as well as one each with ROS1 and RET gene rearrangements. You can see the dose distribution with a little bit of a skew towards the 8 milligram per kilogram dose level. um, And um, what you can see is that uh, the duration on study was reasonably long. Here you can see the response rate, uh, the response rate was 35% um, in this group. Uh, it is a little bit small to see on the bottom, and I realize a busy, uh, a busy slide when you look at the waterfall plot. Um, but again, most of these patients had EGFR mutations. You can see the ALK gene rearranged patients. Uh, we're in green here, um, and you can see the, the others also in different colors. You can see that uh, the mechanism of resistance differed, particularly amongst the EGFR uh, mutation positive patients uh, with uh, many patients having, uh, for instance, C79, C, T790M mutations, uh, many of them not, no clear trends across the waterfall plot, um, indicating that uh, across uh, multiple different genomic alterations, as well as across multiple different resistance mechanisms, that there was evidence of activity um, of this agent. Um, And so um, activity again noted in patients both with and without actionable genomic alterations. So in summary, um, the agent has clearly shown encouraging anti-tumor activity um, at multiple dose levels and the six milligram per kilogram dose is being selected for further development. Um, Response rate was 28% with the duration of response at 10.5 months in that population. Um, the, the, the toxicity was generally uh, well-tolerated, although there were um, these severe uh, cases of interstitial lung disease, including three deaths, all at the highest dose, which is no longer being developed. Um, the, there is a randomized study that is ongoing that is comparing uh, datapotamib, drugs to counter data DXD to docetaxel in previously treated patients. Um, there. Also was anti-tumor activity in, uh, in a heavily pretreated population of patients who did have actual genomic alterations with a, an objective response rate of 35% and a median duration of 9.5 months in that group. Um, so the activity was uh, similar to the population. Um, that did not have actionable genomic alterations that is being evaluated in the tropion lung O1 study. Um, But for further development, uh, of course, this group needs to be uh, separated because um, the treatment algorithm, of course, is different for this population. And so there is um, an ongoing trial, the tropion lung O5 study that is looking at uh, patients with actionable genomic alterations and evaluating their outcome with DatoDxD. There um, is, are additional studies that are being conducted um, looking at, for instance, different combinations, including combinations with immunotherapy uh, a, along with uh, DATO-DXD. Here you see the design for the, uh, the phase 3 tropion lung O1 study that I mentioned. Again, patients are randomized. In this case, it is one-to-one uh, who have advanced disease to DATO-DXD or docetaxel, Um, nearly 600 patients are anticipated to be enrolled, and uh, there will be assessments for progression-free survival, as well as overall survival.
0: Okay. Thank you, uh, uh, Eddie. Uh, We'll uh, move on to our uh, next uh, uh, portion of our presentation, and we'll uh, do some uh, case discussions. And I think, Helena, this is your case.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so this uh, a patient of mine, a 60 year old uh, male, a 50 pack year uh, prior smoker who quit a month ago, um, presents with a new cough. Um, he did get imaging workup that showed a CT scan with um, a five centimeter right upper lobe lung mass. Um, he got a PET scan and an MRI for further uh, to complete staging, and that showed um, hypermetabolic, Hilar and mediastinal lymph nodes, diffuse osseous metastases, as well as liver metastases. MRI brain did not show uh, metastatic disease to the brain. Um, he undergoes a liver biopsy with several cores sent to pathology. So what pathologic and molecular tests should be done? Um, perhaps, um, Posse, do you want to say, if, if this person saw you at Dana-Farber, um, what would be the reflexive tests that would be sent up?
0: So uh, uh, thanks, Helena. So uh, certainly reflexively, uh, we would uh, you know do a surgical pathology review, confirm that this is lung cancer. Uh, look, you know, do IHC for things like TTF one. Uh, we uh, would uh, likely do pdl one staining reflexively on this individual as well. Uh, for us, molecular testing, which is standard of care, is an oncology uh, oncologist ordered uh, uh, test. But uh, when this patient came to see us. Uh, we would order uh, uh, NGS on this individual as well, and with the com- combination of NGS and PD-L1 testing would help potentially guide uh, subsequent treatment.
1: Eddie, any any differences at uh, UCLA, or, or is that pretty much the same?
2: No, we've we've worked to to try and get a system where we can quickly, you know, get patients evaluated. So ideally, um, ideally, the oncologist doesn't have to order it. I think that's going to be a challenge we're going to have in the coming years, so that. Um, We're not seeing patients then having to wait for outcome, but but again, the testing is is really going to be the same here.
1: And then uh, the final question I guess I would pose to both of you is, um, you know, all of us discussed um, new antibody drug conjugates um, that are antibodies against specific proteins. Um, We discussed HER2, HER3, trope 2 but of course there are others, MET-ADCs, others in development, Do you um, foresee a future where um, the IHC testing for these different um, drugs will be reflexive and done on all of our patients, um, or or do you see the future really being more in unselected patients?
0: Uh, I'm happy to take that on first. Uh, I I think for the time being, I don't know that we need to test for any of these uh, particular biomarkers. I think as you showed, and it was true for the HER2 mutants, and I I believe the data is also true for Trope 2, that there isn't a clear uh, relationship between expression and efficacy at the moment. Now, at least by the current assays, that may change as we learn more nuanced ways of measuring these uh, uh, biomarkers, but for the moment, I I don't see that. I don't know. Eddie, what do you think?
2: So the only thing that I would add that I think is a little bit interesting is, I I, I completely agree with, with the assessment, But one of the things that I think is very difficult is many practitioners are getting this data, maybe not for uh, trope two or HER3, but for instance, there is one of the sort of central send out pathology laboratories that um, many of the practitioners um, whose patients I see in second opinion use that just routinely gets HER2, um, IHC across all uh, tumor types. And so um, I think it's challenging to for someone in community who's not managing lung cancer. I completely agree with you that at, to date there's no data that would really say that this should guide our treatment decisions. Um, but I think it's very hard for people who maybe will will see you know not as many lung cancer patients as we do, where this ends up being what we mostly see. Um, and I, I I do have concerns that people will be treating based on these before we really have any data to indicate that it's the right thing to do. I agree, I agree.
1: Yeah, I think it's gonna be a big challenge and and more to come, because I think this ADC wave is is definitely here to stay and and we'll we'll be seeing more drugs.
0: Okay, let's uh, discuss the second case. 75 year old uh, female, never smoker, diagnosed with uh, EGFR wild type non-small cell lung cancer in November of 2019. Uh, She underwent NGS that had an sdk 11 arid ARID-A1 mutation, a TP53 mutation, as well as a HER2 mutation. Was treated with chemotherapy pembrolizumab successfully from uh, December 2019 through February 2020, Uh, followed by pembrolizumab alone. Uh, subsequently returned uh, uh, to uh, a clinic with uh, progressive disease, as seen on this uh, PET scan here on the right-hand side, uh, and had a garden done at, uh, in June, 2020, that uh, was non-detectable or didn't have any sufficient information. So here, um, uh, some questions again for discussion points, what would be the next uh, uh, line of treatment? Uh, would it be standard of care, docetaxel taxol or sumumab? Or perhaps one of the ADCs that we uh, uh, discussed uh, uh, earlier today. Uh, maybe I'll turn it to Helena first uh, for her thoughts.
1: Sure. I mean, I think the, the standard of care would be, as, as noted on the slide, docetaxel and Um You know, not all of our lung cancer patients are eligible for ramucirumab, but of course, if we have the option, the, the combination did have slightly greater efficacy. Um, in terms of, you know, of course, many different clinical trial options may be available to this patient, but focusing on uh, the three ADCs that we discussed today, really um, the trope 2 ADC, the dado direx um, was the only one that was um, really assessed in, uh, oh, ex- excuse me, um, I, I had forgotten about the Her2 alteration. So for for this patient, um, you can see me thinking in real time. Um, I think that the the Her2 ADC would 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 make the most sense. Um, of course, seeing the really impressive response rate um, and um, duration of response and, and PFS um, with that.
0: So so maybe I'll pick up on that Trope2 ADC comment, Eddie. You showed the data on the actionable genomic alterations uh, in the Tropion trial. Were there any HER2 mutant patients in there, do you recall?
2: So in that group, there were no HER2 mutation positive patients. And so um, I think that um, if one, we're looking for an ADC in this particular case, I think it is uh, clear with no data um, that the uh, trastuzumab deruxtecan would be, um, you know, would be a, an ADC that I look at. I think that ado-trastuzumab uh, uh, amtazine is still an, uh, something that's listed for NCCN, um, although it, it was less effective, at least in breast cancer. By comparison, we don't have uh, lung cancer date, uh, data to indicate that. I think that um, to me the, the bigger question is in the EGFR space where where there were a significant number of patients um treated, treated, treated with uh Dato DXD as to what the relative um, enthusiasm for those two um, antibody drug conjugates is. Um but I think in this case we just don't have the data for uh for HER2 mutants in in this uh in the data DXD dataset. Great.
0: Let's uh let's move on here. Okay, so the patient ultimately ends up getting a trastuzumab deruxtecan. she has a good response. However, about two months later, she feels well with no respiratory symptoms, but she comes back for restaging where she had the good response and you see some ground glass opacities that's suspicious for ILD. So Helena, what do you do now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, the, the comforting thing in this patient case is, of course, that the patient feels well. They're not hypoxic. hypoxic. They don't have dyspnea. So, um, I feel good about that. Um, I, uh, of course, if she was due to get treatment that day, I, I would hold treatment. Um, and then we have a pretty good sort of algorithm where we send these patients, uh, pretty quickly to our pulmonary colleagues. Um, you know, I think people can go very quickly from asymptomatic to kind of really quite significantly symptomatic. Um, and so, you know, we would sort of discuss whether empiric steroids would be appropriate or just a hold of the drug, depending on the grade of the toxicity. Um, and then really, of course, ruling out other um, sort of causes of ground glass opacities or infiltrates. But, of course, my pretest probability for ILD or drug-induced pneumonitis would be high with trastuzumab, deruxtecan. decan.
0: Eddie, do you any any additional comments, uh, or would you do anything different?
1: I
2: wouldn't do anything different, but I think it's hard, and I'll just point that out. That it is um, in many respects, when we're conducting clinical trials of of agents like this, we're protected because the trial has a, a set of rules that says if you see this, you have to do this. Um, and clinical practice is not quite as straightforward. and um, ILD can be quite bad. And in fact, as we've seen in these studies, there have been patients who have died from them, but lung cancer is quite bad also. And, um, I think these are going to be very difficult decisions. Uh, and I think, um, we may as, uh, you know, as we incorporate these agents into our treatment paradigm, uh, have to brush up on our thoracic radiology, um, and sort of try and make estimates of, of, of what what are the the imaging findings that are going to tell us that we have to hold treatment today and have a patient assessed by pulmonary versus um changes that we're comfortable with i don't i certainly don't think i'm at the point today to be making those sorts of assessments yet so okay so you send her to the
0: pulmonologist she gets uh she gets uh steroids and uh, you re-image her and the scans are better do you rechallenge her Getting to the clinical, getting to the practical question in, in, in real world, do you, now what? Do you, she responded, she's better from the ILD, do you re-challenge her with this or or do we declare that
2: she has to move on to some other therapy? I think from my perspective, um, steroids would make me nervous if I really needed them. Now, the question that's going to come up is, is if somebody just put her on steroids, uh, put the patient on steroids if it wasn't needed, then I think it's a much more difficult thing. If somebody really developed sort of dyspnea that required steroids, I'd be reluctant to restart it, uh, you know, outside of, of sort of an emergency setting. Um, I think we're gonna have much more difficult things. As, and uh, and you know, one thing I I probably sometimes want a little more control. If I thought it was not so bad, I might not send them to pulmonary for concern of um, you know of, of getting started on steroids and being able to not assess whether or not the patient actually has been symptomatic from this, because I, I think these are going to be hard decisions. Um, and, and that's why I say I think that we are going to have to be a little more expert over time. Um, or ideally, as these become more, um, you know, more things that we're used to doing, um, we'll probably develop a rapport with our, our colleagues in pulmonary where they don't just reflexively start somebody on steroids and sort of take away our ability to assess whether this is a a, a real clinical issue or not?
1: I was glad Eddie went first because I wasn't sure what I was going to say in terms (laughs) of the answer. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think that the distinction, if someone has hypoxia or significant symptoms, I actually probably would not be inclined to retry. Um, I think the only situation I was thinking about it is if um, someone had, you know, grade one asymptomatic um, resolved, hopefully without intervention, you know, I think that there would be, um, you know, and and of course, if there were limited other options that we would go to, I think we will get, as Eddie said, into a position where um, we'll want to retry for some of those patients. Because I think um, you know, In the real world, um, diagnosing ILD in a patient with lung cancer, prior smoker, is is really challenging. And so I think we're going to see more and more of these gray um, cases.
2: And, and the, the only one additional thing I would add here, just from, from the experience of, of doing similar events to this in the early days of PD-1 inhibitors, and all of us agreeing wholeheartedly that we would never resume a PD1 or PDL1 inhibitor in somebody who had evidence of of pneumonitis, um, only to then, you know, a few months later have someone who'd had a great response, had to stop for pneumonitis, and now is dying of lung cancer, um, and negotiating with them about whether or not to restart it. I, I think in practice these 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 problems become more difficult. And I think that um, that over time will develop a, an experience as to what happens if you have to rechallenge. But uh, I think it's much easier to say we would never do it in, in, in an event like this. And, and after having that experience with the PD1 inhibitors, um, I anticipate we'll have that experience again, um, where patients who have done well, um, do want another challenge. And I think it's going to be a, a decision we'll have to be making.
0: And I think just getting back to the diagnostic uh, part, too, we don't, all, you know, access to expert pulmonologists who deal with this uh, uh, is is going to be a limiting uh, factor in the real world. And, you know, an ILD is a di- essentially a diagnosis of exclusion, too. So it's not, you know, so you have to exclude other possibilities. So th- there definitely are challenges to this. And I think uh, as we move along uh, with, with these agents and many more to come, I think, as, as you both point out uh, uh, you know, it, it's not so clear, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll need to balance the the risks and benefits. Okay, so let's uh, uh, let's look at this. This is kind of a big picture of uh, you know how we uh, break down uh, our uh, uh, targeted versus uh, or oncogene addicted versus non-oncogene addicted therapies. Um, uh, we show here kind of where we would use the different ADCs, uh, HER three ADCs, sort of post uh, OSI post chemotherapy. 2 adc post-chemotherapy, the trope 2 adc sort of, again, post-chemotherapy, post-immune both post, uh, uh, post, post uh, immune checkpoint inhibition. This is kind of the current landscape. Where do you think these agents are going to end up? Or do you think they will migrate into the frontline setting? We saw some trial designs potentially in the frontline setting, but uh, Helena, what do you think for the ADCs?
1: I'm definitely interested in seeing these moved up. I think all of us are disappointed with our second line and beyond chemotherapy options. We're certainly not getting... Um, you know, great robust responses that are durable. So I think we, you know, we definitely need more options. I think in particular in the EGFR mutant lung cancer space, I mean, now that we use osimertinib in the first line setting, you know, we have no approved targeted therapies um, post osimertinib. So I think that is really a black box that needs to be filled with some new novel treatments. Um, I'm really interested in the the combination study with HER3DXD with osomertinib um, that is skipping kind of a, a line. So moving it up Prior to platinum doublet chemotherapy, um, and uh, and I think most kind of interestingly as well is continuing the osimertinib. I know that you know you have data where perhaps that combination could be synergistic, um, and I think um, it gets to the point of um, a lot of us feeling very comfortable, especially with a patient that has brain metastases, um, you know, and they are well-controlled on osimertinib. being able to continue that osimertinib, but add in, you know, a, a targeted agent like HER3-DXD to address systemic progression that's really appealing. So I think that's a study that uh, I'm looking out for, um, in particular in the EGFR space. Great.
2: And just two days ago, I, I had a patient in the infusion uh, center who, uh, on... Carboplatin, uh, pembtraxib and pembrolizumab. Who has a HER2 mutation? Um, she's been doing quite well, um, and you know we've talked intermittently about the potential for uh, sort of we have a, 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 a second line plan. And the, a, a, the exact question came up that she asked me: If you, you know, if you had the data today that you had uh, the, 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 at the time that you started treatment, would you still have started me on this, or would you have started me on uh, on, on the HER2 directed ADC. And, um, in that case, it was very easy. We will be having the, uh, the randomized trial. And so what I told her is that, is that from my view that I, I had equipoise, uh, for those two arms, I thought, I, I don't know which is going to be a better approach. And, and I'm looking forward to, uh, enrolling patients and seeing the results of, it on that study. But I do think it's a very fair and important question.
0: And where and where do you see the trope two ADC moving in the frontline setting, or or do you do you see it in the frontline setting?
2: So I think it's it's a question. Um, everybody has sort of viewed one place to get one drug to get rid of, and it's not you know it's not exactly clear that maybe the the non platinum chemo or, and. and and I don't know the answer to that. Um, uh, obviously, there's a lot of development in the second line uh, space. Obviously, patients who've progressed after chemoimmunotherapy is a is a significant unmet need. And um, certainly, if you saw even similar, uh, even a slight decrement in the efficacy in the phase three study from uh, from DXd, one would anticipate that that should be enough to be better than than dose Although we have to see. Um, I think that we're we're revisiting a lot of our standard approaches, and um, I think we're going to learn what the right way to do things are in terms of what we would want to be replacing in that frontline setting, um, but I think it, it is certainly exciting.
1: I was just going to add to what um, Eddie said. I think we need sort of biomarkers. We're getting a lot, you know, these new drugs that are in that... Um, you know, 25 to 30% response rate, you're not quite better uh, than, than chemo IO. Um, so whether it's finding kind of negative predictive biomarkers, patients that we know will not do well with chemo IO um, and, and kind of looking at that population to, to move these kind of novel agents up or on the flip side, you know, I think, um, you know, I think that will help us um, in the future in terms of uh, figuring out where to place these new drugs.
0: And we talked about ILD with these agents, but there are several trials ongoing with I.O. in these agents. Uh you want to comment on that, either one of you?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the hot thing, right, to combine everything, you know, sort of if things work, let's put them together and see. I, I definitely am, you know, concerned, I think, that we have... Um, you know, we've combined agents with IO, um, when we think about like the osimertinib dervalium data, um, where we weren't expecting, um, kind of, uh, synergistic or additive toxicity and we saw it. So I think, um, you know, we'll just, and I'm sure the, the study investigators will be careful, but, you know, something like adding the HER2-DXD with chemo, uh, with, you know, ICI, that would be something that would be pretty, pretty nerve wracking for me. But yeah, I think we'll see what the data show.
2: Although the flip side of the experience with osimertinib and durvalumab would be the uh, the experience with chemoradiotherapy followed by Durvalimab, which um, was one that uh, would have been terrifying to me, I, I was not involved with that trial um, at the outset. But actually, did much better than what we anticipated, and probably gets to the point that we still don't really know what we're doing with respect to this. That uh, if you would have asked us, you know, several years ago. Whether or not it'd be easier to combine osimertinib with dervalimab or chemoradiotherapy, uh, we would have, you know, we would have all been absolutely confident in our answer and we, we would have all been wrong. And so I, I think that it's going to be an exciting time, uh, and maybe sometimes a scary time in clinical trials, um, to try and figure out what the, uh, the appropriate placement of these are and, and, and what's going to turn out to be safe and what isn't. And that and that's why we
0: do the trials to figure out both the efficacy as well as uh what's uh, not safe to give together okay, so uh, one uh, um, uh, uh quick uh, last
2: case uh Eddie, was this your case? Yeah, and it really gets at exactly the 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 points that I was making before so there's a sixty six year old man locally advanced disease uh, had chemo radiotherapy uh which actually had to be stopped for radiation pneumonitis, required steroids. Um, but after a couple of months, the steroids were able to be tapered off and the patient was uh, initiated on Dervalumab, which is a sort of a scary proposition, but presumably the practitioner is sort of hoping that the toxicity would not be uh, sort of, a, a, you know, necessarily exacerbated by Dervalumab. And the toxicity wasn't exacerbated by Dervalumab, it, but there was no efficacy in the sense that the patient progressed and has now in rapid succession progressed through uh, chemo radiotherapy followed by... Uh, immunotherapy. The patient had a known HER2 mutation. And so uh, now getting away from the question of IO combined with uh, with, with one of these agents, um, do you feel comfortable knowing that this patient had radiation pneumonitis? And, and do you think that would be a risk factor for the toxicity of, of, of ILD?
0: Well, I, I think um, I, I would worry about it a little bit. Uh, you know, most of the uh, patients that had radiation pneumonitis were also excluded from the trials. Uh, so we don't really have data on any kind of lung injury and how well or how how not well it predicts for subsequent uh, pneumonitis from an ADC. But one would certainly worry about it. But I think to your point that you made earlier, uh, lung cancer is, uh, is bad as well. And so I think you have to balance out the, the pros and cons here.
1: I totally agree. I don't have too much more to add. I guess I'd want a little bit more details of like, did they get weekly carbotaxel with chemotherapy? And could we try just like platinum um, kind of systemic dose chemotherapy? I might might use that as a hedge. But um, I agree. I think it's not that the HER2 um, uh, DXD is off the table. It's just kind of wanting things to cool off a little bit before maybe I'd feel comfortable testing the waters.
0: And and I think there was an additional question uh, related to this case, uh, um, and that was CNS penetrance of ADCs. Um, Helena, thoughts?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that that is kind of coming into it, into sort of our our knowledge about this type of molecule, Um, ADCs, just like antibodies are bulkier. Um, And of course, there is some concern about blood-brain barrier penetration. Um, You know, I think that um, the key to this is we just have to look at the data. Um, I think that when things work, um, they tend to work, uh, you know, systemically and in the CNS. Um, and so I, I would just encourage, you know, as these studies move forward, of course, all studies really need to have good CNS um, efficacy endpoints built into the study. So we have that data and we can sort of make those decisions about, you know, how we would want to use these drugs for our patients with brain mets.
0: Eddie, any experience from the Trope 2 world about CNS uh, activity?
1: No, uh, anecdotally,
2: we've had some people whose brain, uh, you know, had brain metastases that, that improved, always a little hard to know without rigorous evaluation, whether that could be secondary to prior therapy, but it makes me hopeful, but certainly, you know, these are large molecules.
0: Thank you again uh, for joining us today. This activity is certified by PVI, Peer Review Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash ZGP 860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca and Daiichi Sankyo Incorporated.